Welcome to those who are joining. Today, you're listening to the 36th episode of Fintech Cafe, and we're joined by Lule Demise. She's the CEO of eToro US. We do have a website, fintechcafe.org. You can check out the Fintech Job Board. We get a lot of questions for jobs within these fintech companies who we host. So we upload them uh, for you. You can check out the website. A disclaimer, Manisha and I, we have full-time jobs within the financial services, and this is just something we do as a hobby. Our employer is not associated with the show. We're not endorsing any products, and we're certainly not providing any investment advice either. The intention behind why we do this weekly is simply to cultivate a community of thought leadership. Let's kick it off. My name is Ambika Sharma. Manisha and I, we started this about eight, nine months ago now, and I am a product manager within the fintech industry. So over to you, Manisha, for your introduction. Thanks, Ambika. Manisha Chakrapani, Ambika's co-host uh, on Fintech Cafe, and honored to have Lule join us today and host you. Thanks so much for joining us. Lule, do you mind a quick introduction before we get started? Absolutely. Good, good evening, everyone. Lule de Messe, currently the U.S. CEO uh, of a company called Fintech called eToro been here now for almost four months, a little bit more than four months, a really exciting social investing platform. I've been in investing and serving the investor, the, re- the individual investor, most of my career, uh, originally from Ethiopia, but I'm a Brooklynite now. Thank you. With that, for those who are not aware of eToro, Lule, how would you describe what eToro does? So we are what I what I often describe people to people is like there are platforms that have education on them. There are platforms like trading pl- investing platforms that have social features, perhaps. There are platforms that have the ability to have ease of use and and other things. Etoro took that and just smushed it all together. So it's actually a social trading platform, meaning as an investor, you come in, you have a social handle, you get to engage in over 24 million of our users that either might be there just to track and learn or there to invest and trade. But you are in an ecosystem of people learning from the from the wisdom of the crowd and seeing how other people are doing it. And then we have some pretty innovative features that we have called copy investor, copy trader, you can look at in the social ecosystem other people's strategies and should you choose to can copy it and the vice versa can happen too. the other people can copy your transactions obviously there's privacy people don't get to see your 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 balances your real name none of the pii is there but people get to see strategy and so again we're sort of making it possible so that you don't have to be in a white shoe wall street firm for for the access of intelligence of interesting diversified strategies for investing and how did that social, the cause of opening up investment to the public start for you, Lule, just in terms of your journey to eToro? Was it always a part of your career, which I think in some shape or form was always related to investing? How did that come about, getting to eToro? So I'm, I'm an immigrant. So, you know, part of my journey has been going, coming to America and sort of just enjoying all of the, the fruits that this country has to bear for newcomers and t- who are hungry to learn and make their way. And I was no different than any of those. And economics and finance have been something that have been interesting to me and many people in my family. I grew up with my parents debating and my uncles and aunts debating about 
economic policy and politics. And so it was already in my blood. And so when I came here, you know, applying that interest to a profession was fairly intuitive for me. So I started out, I went to college up in Smith College in Massachusetts, and I started out in an analyst program, actually, at J.P. Morgan. And that just kept on opening up more doors. I went to Merrill Lynch, and I was a financial advisor. And then I, after business school, I joined Morgan Stanley, which was an amazing firm where I learned product management and strategy and all sorts of things, investor education. And after that, really recognized that, you know, I was so grateful for what traditional Wall Street taught me. But I, I kind of knew I wanted to get closer and closer to the regular person on the street. And so went to TD Ameritrade to help build out their uh, investor program and ran many of their products and seeded many of their products and then kept on doing that uh, afterwards, really getting closer and closer to what I consider to be retail investors, you know, people who started out just like me. Thank you. And how how have you made your decisions in your career professionally, Lule? Like what have been some of the guiding principles that have brought to you along this journey? Um, always fascinated by especially everything that I've heard about you. So would love to take a piece of learning uh, from <laughs> on that front. I mean, I have a few things, you know, wisdom comes also with age. But I think, you know, one of the things that I always tell people is like, I, whether it was early in my career or even now, I'm always encouraging people like there isn't always a formula, but there is one formula that works, which is don't be, if you don't make leaps in your, in whatever projects or jobs or opportunities, or even just the way you approach a particular learning, if you don't leap and take risk, whether it's risk because you feel foolish or you don't have enough knowledge or you don't have enough skill, there is no reward. And I think sometimes what happens is a lot of people in their desire to curate their career so well, they forget to dial up the risk quotient, which means that some things can, you know, there are parts of my career that have gone sideways on me. When, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, you know, I'm also a member of the LGBTQ family and I, you know, I, I was in a job and I didn't have a green card and I was just sponsored as an H1 and like, how do I, how do I make sure that I stay relevant and desirable in this in this market. And so just solving that problem was more important than a particular career step at that time. So just knowing that ultimately like careers go sideways, upwards, et cetera, but just fearlessness always pays off even when it's teaching you when it you know, when you've lost. Your story is very inspiring. I just tweeted out saying we're talking to you and first of all, you're very charismatic and you have a great story. So I wanna first I want to pivot however now to your crypto, your current professional expertise. But starting with when you first started invested in crypto. So I guess so the question I, is, when did you first invest in crypto? Yeah. So the, I was intellectually interested in crypto well before I, I uh, started investing in it. And I would say, you know, I wasn't one of those people that had myself, you know, before crypto became easier to do through the magic of software, where I had my own personal wallet. And like, I wasn't one of those people that had that, like that 20, you know, whatever the, however many units of passcodes that you could have, and then you lose it and you're, all of your crypto is gone. I wasn't that part of that generation, but I was intellectually curious even there by blockchain. And at that time, it wasn't just about blockchain for the purpose of, in some ways, the way we use it as a digital asset and currency now, but blockchain is a mechanism for so many things that it could empower. I just was so fascinated by this idea of a self-correcting system that didn't need a centralized force to, to, to manage it. 
And so that was really where it first started for me. That's just the intellectual interest around blockchain. And there's so many interesting ways that it still hasn't been unwrapped, you know, and the power of what it could do for so much of the with the sort of the delivery of services that happen in financial services, including my own business. And out of that then came to, oh, so this one of these use cases for this is uh, digital currency. And so then I started really getting interested in it, I'd say about five plus years ago. And then just have not, I, I, the bug touched me after that, really. Like I've not stopped ever since. And it's not a you know, I'm not one of those people that feels like so evangelized that you can't, you, you know, you only drink your own Kool-Aid. But I would say that, you know, what's fascinating about blockchain and, and NFTs and digital assets and crypto is that I think what is underappreciated by people who are saying, you know, what's this about? Why is such hype about it? Is the number of use cases that it could be used in is humongous, which is such an innovation to have. Like, you know, if you have one particular asset that does maybe two or three things, you can understand why the the road can run out on it. You have something that can just keep on going in terms of its its purpose, its utility, and it just becomes infinitely complex and interesting. Right, we're just getting started. So eToro, I'm actually a member, so I was looking at my app while you were speaking. So eToro is an investing platform. You have about 27 different cryptocurrency currencies and you also launched stocks and ETFs last week. It's more than also an investment platform. It's actually a thriving global social community. But I'm curious to know, how did eToro get started? What's the founding story? Well, the founder is, this, I mean, it's a story of people who were first, two brothers who were first really interested in, um, in investing. You know, they were, they much like me, they had they had a father who was in this industry, the, the CEO of eToro, his name is Yoni Asai, and he is just a CIA, and he's just a charismatic, energetic person that just, you could tell that he was like this from the beginning, and he's not lost that inner child in him, and the fascination, the desire to make this space really accessible. And so they, they were born much like I was in a family that really appreciated the capital markets, and not like the capital markets in a you know, jockey trading perspective, but like the power of investing and what it can do to change people's lives, whether it, um, it's the capital that they have in their own lives that can make their lives that much easier or the capital that they can pass on to their families. And as we know, generational wealth is one of the, the most powerful ways that we can tackle inequity in this world, being able to give people access to build generational wealth. So I am I was when I met them, it was like when it was just his energy level and his 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 infectious desire to really um, to really empower individuals and create equity in this world was really something that just appealed to me. You know, the other thing that's so interesting is like eToro is not just a social trading platform, but it also has like a foundation that we have called the Good Dollar. And, it, and the good dollar is a fascinating coin, crypto asset as well, where the logic underneath it is not just to be able to own this currency and to be able to use it, but also to disseminate essentially capital to others. It's, it's almost like the first use case of universal income in, in, a, in an interesting way. And so uh, what I love about this company is that it's not just thinking of things in only one angle. It's really thinking of digital asset and the digitalization of, the, of these assets and what else could they power. We're really excited about some of the stuff that Yoni's getting excited about around NFTs and what that 
that could mean for us in the future. So yeah, it's it's a really exciting family and a, an exciting company. And could you explain the difference between eToro's U.S. operations and other countries? Yeah, I mean, you know, not that dissimilar to a global company that has divisions and businesses in other places. So eToro USA is an entity that is functioning within the U.S., beholden to U.S. regulatory sort of requirements and rules and functions as such. But it's also part of a, a, a larger corporation that has similar products and services that services people in Europe and uh, Asia and Latin America and other places. Sure. And why the decision behind building a social community on your platform? Well, what's interesting is that is actually the genesis of the platform, right? So I think the reason why they decided to make it social is, you know, when you think social has disintermediated everything, right? So it's disintermediated recruiters because of LinkedIn. It has, it, you know, they use it now. It's an extension of their of their system. It has disintermediated news. I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, main mainstream news is gone, but it has disintermediated it for sure in so many ways through Twitter and what the platforms we're talking on and so many other places. The idea of thinking that all the social can disintermediate everything and not disintermediate investing is a foolish one. And so I think they thought this is bound to happen. And people, the reason why do they create social, why, you know, why is social so useful in any of many of these places? Because the power of its community, the creation of community. And so when you think about investing, whether it's investing clubs in the old days or people talking about investing when they get together, it is a community activity to share ideas, um, strategies. And so it makes sense to me that it would end that, that sort of old-fashioned idea of exchange of ideas would then become part of the, the digital ecosystem. Got it. And uh, I think another differentiating aspect about eToro, in my humble opinion, is your exclusive copy trader technology, which enables yeah. investors on your platform to compare top traders' performance and choose to replicate their trading activity if they, ch if they choose in real time. Would mm -hmm. you tell us more about this program, both from the supply side and the demand side? Yeah, you know, it's funny when I first uh, started using copy. I mean, I knew about eToro before I joined them. So when I first started using a copy, I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, they've cracked the code of the thing that has dogged me all my career in financial services and, and serving the individual investor, which is that, you know, the individual investor is by as they have shown themselves to be. They're no dummies. Right. But, you know, we have kids to raise, lives to live. We've got a lot of stuff, other stuff that's calling on our on our time. We're not intellectually interested in investing. It's just that it can't feel like another workload that we have to do. And so what I love about copy is it takes the intelligence of what I think investors want to be engaged in, which is out there, who's who doing what, what are the interesting strategies, but then don't have to do the work of building that strategy, right? So what copy allows you to do is, let's say if you and I, you know you and myself and, and um, the three of us were on the, on the copy platform, I could look at your strategy and if I like it with one click, copy it and voila, it's in my portfolio. And so it just makes with ease the ability to tap into the hive, the intelligence of the crowd. So two things on that. First, from a regulatory perspective, 
do these traders who are part of the copy trader program, are, do, they do, they, do they need any special license? So remember that we, we're a crypto platform first, right? So as you know, brokerage and crypto are, are not always regulated the same way. But we have rules and guidelines for these, these traders that are on our platform. We, we track people's portfolios. If somebody has portfolios that are tracked by t like at a certain threshold, right? We will stop copies happening until they've either passed a new threshold that we think is important and they've passed it or whether they um, apply officially to our popular investor program. So there's things we've done in the system to make sure that we, the strategies that are on our platform are ones that are sound. The other thing we do is the transparency that comes with it, right? So on our platform, when you're trying, when you're investing in any crypto assets on our platform, you will see in any given individual's strategy that you're looking at, their risk profile is just as pronounced and understood as their their return profile and their historical return profile. So it's really important, in my opinion, to be transparent with the retail investor, with any investor. And so that transparency, we think, is also something that puts the power of the of the click to, to in the hands of the investor. Got it. And last question, and then Manisha, I'll hand it over to you. And that is, again, from a point of view of economics. What about what are some ways to mitigate psychological traps around herd mindset? You know, economics is based on the fundamental premise of we're all rational, rational behavior, rational actors. However, that's not how it works in real time. And we have this herd mindset. We seem to follow an influencer or a leader. So what, how, do, how does the system ensure that that influencer or that leader here, the copy trader, does the right thing and doesn't lead individuals toward wrong decision making? Yeah. So I think so one of them, obviously, is transparency and understanding whatever left or right turn they're making, that you're always seeing the risk profile right along that side. So I think if you're not showing the profile and you're only showing the upside of somebody, then clearly you're not showing a fair and balanced view of that strategy, right? So I think that the key is to make sure it's fair and balanced. The other thing is, though, is I, I want to actually push back on your sort of premiered mindset, which is that I'm not saying there's no such thing as herd mindset, but I think that it would be an oversimplification of what's happening to, this, to the social network, if you will, to think that it's just about herd mindset. I think what's happening is that the intelligence of many parts of the globe are getting networked. I am accessing to the network of intelligence of all sites of sorts just did not have before. Now, what I do with that information is something that is up, up to me, which is why as a platform, we think it's important that we serve you up that intelligence with transparency around the risk profile and the return of that individual. Fair, thank you. All right. So digging a little more into that uh, customer persona, Lule, the other side of the investors, who are your either current or growth area from a customer standpoint? I was actually surprised to see that you started crypto first with the stocks launching as recently as last week on the eToro platform. So just curious about some of the customer personas that you're serving. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if I had to give it to you in a nutshell, eToro is the story of the rise of the retail investor, right? And so what you see when you when you double click into our into our business is, you know, 70% of our customers are older millennials and younger, right? So I often say we are serving tomorrow's investors today. That's our platform. Um, 
And in terms of their investment knowledge, you know, it's anywhere between one to three years. So they may, you know, at least that's what they've told us. When, you know, one of the things we have is a very rigorous know your client process where we make sure that we are putting people and profiling people in a way that's important and understanding their risk profile. So, you know, one of the things that we see is that they're newer, newish to investing as well. So tomorrow's investors who have just, you know, decided that, you know, at that point in time, this, at the point in time that we started really surging, that engagement in, in investing in assets is important for them. And then lastly, I'd say, you know, the part that, I, you know, we know we have a lot more work to do, and frankly, as an industry, we have a lot more work to do, is the gender parity aspect of it. You know, I, you know, when you look at from a gender parity perspective, you look at home ownership, and you really do see if you include married women, for instance, and, and a gender parity in home ownership, right? When you look at equities, right, and investments in, you know, in the in the, in the typical capital markets environment, yeah, it's not it, the gap is not completely closed, but there's definitely parity, you know, starting to take place. You look at crypto and it's not the case. It's there's a definite skew to more male participants in the in, in that industry. And so I think that the gender par- parity piece is as much for our challenge as it is in any part of the crypto industry that we have to work on. And then I'd say, you know, from a what's so fascinating about crypto is that, you know, I've said this, I said this just the other day, it's sort of like it's one of the most diverse asset classes there is in the sense that the ownership of it, folks who own it look like the 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 rainbow colors of the planet right now the folks who own crypto that is not the case in home ownership (laughs) that is not the case in stocks it's gotten much better the pandemic saw more and more people of color getting into the capital markets which is just great but crypto has already arrived in that it has already you know the ownership of crypto and digital assets at large has become very diverse on that level i'm gonna have to use that term the rainbow (laughs) <laughs> colors of the customer persona. Uh, but that's fascinating. Uh, it sounds like the barriers were probably lower to entry on that front and that's helped inclusivity there. And I also like the way you've defined it as tomorrow's investors because they could be anywhere in their life journey, but it's the investor journey that you're putting that peg on. So thanks for sharing that. Since you touched on retail investing, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on the trend there, Lily. I know that's really driven a lot of change in the investing space in the last few years. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on the sustainability of uh, retail investors uh, along with eToro's growth strategy. Yeah. So, you know, if I had a crystal ball, you know that we'd be doing something else very different, right? <laughs> but I can, tell, I can tell you from the data that we see right now. So, no, you know, part of it, as you know, is you know, my per- premise I always tell people is like the 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 crisis, this COVID crisis, this pandemic we lived in unleashed, I think, trends that are already there. I think 08 totally changed the psychological makeup of the retail investor. I think 08 hardened them a little bit, but then they realized, actually, this is the way the game is. is. This is what's going to happen. There'll be crashes, there'll be ups, and I have to figure out how to, you know, dollar cost average or find the dips and try to get in when, I, when the opportunity arises. And so I think that that resiliency was starting to develop already. But I think, you know, what we saw then is that this resiliency pays off in the way that they sort of surged and engaged during the pandemic time. And what we're seeing in the data is that they haven't actually pulled back in the sense that we're not losing retail investors out of the market. The the growth rate for sure has been muted a little, but that 
that could very well be as much about the fact that people are a little bit more non-digital in their day-to-day life now. It could also be because, you know, they might feel that the market is a little rich right now. And so they have a little bit of a wait and see attitude. And But but the, the, the level of engagement among that are already customers and the growth rate is still very much there. I It is my fundamental belief that you know, in the coming decades, the retail voice will be, will be one of the most important inputs that any money manager will be looking at, not just like they're looking at other trends um, in the marketplace. Sounds like a retail democracy happening <laughs> and change movement. Thank you. And so, and the other question I had as it relates to that group of investors, we've heard that incumbents have not picked up fast enough, right, to get in and fill in that space, especially in the crypto space. But as you know, more of the incumbents are trying to get in there. How do you see eToro positioned um, for success? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like I always say, I I, I want to always be the eternal David. I think that it keeps you nimble, smart, and close to the voice of the regular people. And so I think that that it's hard to keep that when you become an incumbent. By definition, an incumbent is institutional in nature. It's now in the preservation game, right? So I think that the very nature and intrinsic sort of like DNA makeup makes it really hard to be irreverent and breaking normal because you've got a lot more to lose when you start breaking normal. And so for us in eToro, the, 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 the magic for us will be to continue to do what I actually, when you asked me about my career, to do those fearless things that, that push boundaries to uh, keep embracing the future to go where the voice of the customer and the, the wisdom of the crowd is going and to try to make sure that we're serving them in that in, in a way that is listening to their needs the benefit of having you know a social platform a social trading platform is that we get to listen to a lot of voices in terms of what what that future should be looking like and uh, we're getting to the last few minutes of our moderated session Lulay. so i would like to end this section with the question of your rich background. I think we could have gone in so many different ways with you from a subject standpoint. Obviously, eToro has been our focus for today, but want to celebrate your story, right? You have that, the identity, the intersecting identities, being an immigrant, the member of the LGBTQ community, you know, and the CEO of a fintech firm at this point. From your perspective, would love to hear how the industry could create more opportunities to have stories like yours proliferate. Yeah. And, you know, I always, I out myself on every front when I tell my story <laughs> because I want to make sure whether it's because I'm gay or, you know, in this audio system, you know, people might not see my face. At least they can see my picture, but I, I'm black. You know, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I out that all the time as well. Because and the reason I do it is not because I, I want people to think I'm so extraordinary. It's because I actually think that you don't have to be extraordinary to reach for the stars. You can have all these things work against you and resiliency and the discipline of knowing when to give others and knowing when to take from the system to be to support yourself. Really important things to make sure that it is possible to do, to do many things in life and where you come from doesn't have to be where you end up. That doesn't mean that um, there aren't real systemic issues that keep a lot of people out of opportunities. That's one of the reasons I'm so committed to being um, whatever part of my profession it was, whether now I'm in, you know, in financial services, but I, I could have been in baking, I could have been in fashion, and it would still be the same mission. How do I bring more people in? How does this not just become a party of only one type of people? 
How do we make the tent wider? And the reason is, you know, beyond the fact that when I reached the other side of my, of my life, <laughs> I wanted to be able to, to, to testify that I tried to do something good. It, that's one of them. But the other, selfishly, is that I often tell this to people. I've never built a team that is one thing that outperforms the multicultural team. Never. Like, it's just not because it makes sense, though, right? Because people who come from different places, they catch each other's blind spots. They enrich the idea. They they keep iterating in ways that bring new things uh, to it. And so I think the richness of diversity and what it does is as much valuable to creation and other things as it is to the fact that it just makes us sleep well at night. Thank you so much. With that high note, we're going to open up for questions from the audience. Ambika, do you want to do the honors? Oh, sure. Well, I can. No, it's okay. Yes. So we're now open for the questions. Just know that we are recording. And if you come up and ask your questions or share your opinions and thoughts, it will be recorded. We ask that you please share your name and then you ask your question. There are two ways to ask your question. One, if you're okay coming up and speaking like Adam just did, just raise your hand. There's an icon on the bottom right. If you click on that, we'll bring you up. Monisha and I are moderators. We'll bring you up. Or if it's loud wherever you are or you, you want us to read your questions, there's an icon on the bottom right. It's like an airplane. If you click on that, you can send us a message and we will read the question on your behalf. But we will also read your name. So just be mindful that we will be disclosing that. With that, Adam, welcome. Um, if you want to introduce yourself and ask your question. Sure. Hi, my name is uh, Adam Riggelhaupt and uh, Lule, it's good to see you. Oh! <laughs> Hello. So, so Lule and I used to work together. I used to work for Lule at Morgan Stanley. So Lule, first, congratulations on your role as a CEO of eToro in the U.S. I, I look forward to seeing you continue to transform the financial industry and, and uh, the NFT and, and crypto industry. So uh, congratulations. Yes. So first question is with regards to the whole social community in, in investing structure, which is has become very, very prominent in, in, you know, with Robin Hood and Discord and things of, of that nature. When when you look at the eToro environment, social environment, do you also not only take into consideration the, the community that is that are members of eToro, but do you also look at external social intelligence? So as you mentioned, Telegram, Discord, Twitter, so on and so forth, right? There's, there's so many prominent social, social applications out there that people use to get information, right? Information is so powerful these days. Is there, does eToro take that data analytics from those social applications and then bring that information in a, in a way that is digestible to your users? So, you know, that, first of all, so good to hear from your brother. I, I hope to catch up with you afterwards. Will do. Um, uh, so there are, yes. So, so the, the internal social ecosystem is as much about the utility of being able to see other strategies, to follow them, other voices, to be able to copy those strategies. But if we just made it internal, that would just be, uh, you know, it's sort of like you're, yeah, it could it could be a little tone deaf. Now, the benefit of it is because these people are overwhelmingly social in other parts of their world, that intelligence is also brought into the circle. But no, absolutely. There are things like there's a fantastic service called The Tie that does sort of data and technology trends analysis for digital assets. And we have a portfolio that's called The Tie. So you can be able to follow that strategy, that crypto strategy that's based on that social 
network knowledge and that what's happening in that sentiment analysis of that behavior. So definitely that it is a both internal as well as external. And that is what I think is so powerful. That's what I meant about when earlier when I was pushing back about the, the concept of it's not just herd mentality. Like I think we're networking into people's brains, you know, sometimes that that's rubbish what we hear, right? But the reality is the power of that network of that collection of insight to do what I want to with that is really, really important. I'm believe, I mean, I came to the States believing that I love, I'm, I'm, I love the capital markets. I think it's impossible to make your way and make opportunity in, you know, in life without engaging in the capital market. So the fact that there's now a system that taps into the intelligence of that crowd in the different changes and thoughts it's having is phenomenal, but we do both. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Kunal, over to you if you want to introduce yourself. My name is uh, Kunal Sen. I work at US Bank. I'm very familiar with some of the concepts that you talked about. By the way, very impressive uh, story, Lule, over there. Congratulations. My question is a little bit, uh, you know, how do you see the future unfolding in this space? On one hand, you have things like bitcoins, which is more like a store of value, like like gold, and you, you know, we, we consider gold as a store, or used to consider gold as a store of value. On the other hand, we have things like smart contracts, NFTs, etc., which is more of a transactional system uh, that can develop its own ecosystem and tokens and things like that. So I almost see like there's a bifurcation on the path. Where do you see this going? Is it a store of value, or is it like a true currency? I think that it's all of the above, and that's what's so mind-blowing about it. First of all, nice to meet you, Kamal, and thank you for the kind words. I think it's all of the above, and I think that's why it's so tricky for most people to get their minds around something that could be a store of value, a means of exchange, right, for as a currency, or maybe powering other things as well on top of that, an experience, if you will. So I think that the, the, the reality is, you know, Bitcoin has arrived. I think that that's not, a, that's not new news. But the question really will be about what other things, what are other innovations and digital assets will arrive the way it did, where ultimately this technology doesn't just become a means of creating store of value and exchange for commercial value, but it also becomes a means, the rails, to do other things on it, right? At the end of the day, when you think about what's happening with digital currencies, it's like it's almost like the Internet of Things is finally has arrived and it's starting to really come true. So I think things like NFTs are going to also create other types of rails that are going to be fascinating. The first use case we're seeing, obviously, in the NFT land is of what's it's doing for artists and sports, right? Where you're seeing like value of the digitization of assets and what people are doing. Now, some of it is the craze and the excitement around it, but a lot of it is legitimate because what's happening is that instrument is also a means of not only digitizing the asset, but creating communities among communities. And that ultimately, you know, one of the reasons we're so excited to be at eToro because community is at the core of that instru- of, the, of the service, is that I think the story of all of this digitization at the end of the day, if you have to put a human face on it, it's going to be the story of how communities have been connected in so many ways. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, can I ask a follow-up question, uh, if you don't mind? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it almost seems like you know, like you know, the fluctuation of the of the currencies, etc. Uh, do you feel that <clears throat> you know, for um, consciously or unconsciously in the human mind, that the cryptos are 
kind of sort of backed by the the US dollar even I though they're supposed to be uh, a completely independent of it decentralized etc so the way i would look at it is i think the premise is actually not correct which is that what what digital assets are doing is they're saying there's no backing of some magic you know voodoo person anymore right it's essentially mm-hmm. saying the blockchain is what blockchain we trust so yeah. i think that the premise is wrong in the sense that you know the question really becomes in my opinion like do institution does institutional power in either whether it's in the form you know governments or whether it's in the form of you know the federal reserve or others does it become more diluted as in blockchain we trust becomes more and more true right so i don't think it's it's about a backing or not backing i think we're leaping into an intrepid future i i i don't i'm not in any way shaping saying that that intrepid future is not bumpy we already see that it's bumpy like all mm-hmm. intrepid futures are you know one of the things that i i think is it would be unfair is to try to 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 sell people the idea that you shouldn't buckle up right this this is what it is but the at least fundamentally for me what i learned is this is a much more interesting ride than the safety of of getting on a ride that's not that <laughs> that not volatile but it's not going to the future Right, right. No, I'm I'm already buckled up. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Kunal. Hi, William. Welcome back. Hi. Nice to meet you guys. I was there last week, um, and and um, nice to meet you, Luet. Uh, Hello. Very, very, <laughs> yeah, very, very touched to to hear your story because, as a minority in so many ways, and to make it where you are today is really. amazing and i really would love to add you on linkedin if you if that's okay absolutely i feel okay. very proud of the fact that my linkedin is is a, a rainbow of everybody so absolutely okay wonderful thank you so much so my question for you uh, i personally own a blockfi you know the credit card you can consume and earn cryptos on it and also i believe uh, gemini also offering the same thing on crypto.com they offering something similar but it's debit card uh, for ton of rewards so how do you like those strategies do you think that's something itora is interested or or like yeah thank you for your question uh, yes i think they're very interesting i think that uh, any itora yes is exploring it both globally cuz just can keep in mind we're a global company as well as being in the us but we're exploring it at the global level we think that it is it is a natural extension of owning these digital assets that you'll want to have different utilities out of them right so i think that it space it'll be interesting also to see you know how the regulation shapes up but i i think it's a natural extension of of our strategy as well as others thank you william thank you hi this is jeffrey i work for sofi and i had a question around the central bank is currently issuing digital currency and i want you to know what is your view on that and yeah and and, and just go from that are you talking about fiat yeah yeah um, right i mean at the end of the day currency is digitized and it's become you know it's like every uh, like nfts are digitizing other types of assets so i think it totally makes sense that the central bank is also joining the digital means i think it'll it's be it'll be healthy for the greater good that you know things will be faster transactions will be faster the rails will be faster 
so I think, you know, in the end, you know, I think it'll be a good thing for the broader uh, society. And I had another question. So I know this whole thing about cryptocurrency, I'm, a, I'm an accountant by trade. So everyone is still trying to figure out how do you classify it? What do you see cryptocurrency be classified in the future as just a normal asset like stock ready held for sale or something else like cash? Yeah. The digital assets, you know, that, that question is an interesting one because we're always, as human beings, trying to always fit square pegs and round holes. It, it's all of the above. That's why it is making everybody scratch their heads, right? The fertility in so many different directions. And I think that that's going to be the interesting struggle for regulators as they try to do what's best for the consumer to make sure that it doesn't snuff out innovation in trying to define it just as one thing when it's many things. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you, Jeff. Alejandro, hi, it's been a while. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Lule. Thank you for, for sharing your story. My name is Alejandro. I work for Novi, Meta's financial service. And I'm curious of eToro's kind of perspective on financial literacy, given that it's there's a big need for it. And it's so important when making investments and digital assets accessible. Thank you. Mucho gusto, Alejandro. Thank you for joining me today. I would say that education is at the heart of everything we do. and But education comes in different forms, right? So I'm not a person that believes that for something to be called education, that it has to be boring and disengaging. I think a lot of traditional Wall Street firms have put a lot of education on their websites and on their shelves, and it's nobody's picked up the book. Um, because it's not been engaging and, and it's not giving the human being what, what the human brain requires, which is that it, the human brain learns by doing. And so we, one of the things we did in our platform from the genesis is we decided that there were actually, there was a platform that you can invest in and actually put your money in and start trading or investing. But that same very platform also is available for you to just track assets, trade without putting any capital in practice what happens to this mock portfolio of yours, see um, how that reacts to different market conditions. So we we are so committed to learn to education, whether it's our learning academy, the, the our analysts that are constantly giving context to investors on when events are happening and we're showing up in social and other places, but also how we designed our platform so that it is inviting the learning by doing uh, mind frame that is really what teaching where, where teaching happens. Yes, I love the learning by by doing. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Heather, hi. If you want to introduce yourself and then ask your question. Yes, hi. So this is Heather and I work for MX. My question for you is kind of more around your thoughts on and how you feel about big banks starting to offer crypto um, and compete in this space. What do you think the future looks like for, I guess, cryptocurrencies and these different platforms? Good evening, Heather. Funny you should ask that. I just came from a bank. So I, before eToro, I was I was the head of Ally Invest, which is the investment arm of Ally Bank, which is a digital bank. And so I had the pleasure of running an investment business within the umbrella of a, whole, a bank holding company and saw, you know, the struggles for traditional, you know, an institution that's governed by, you know, by the banking regs, how, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's a tricky and interesting conundrum for them to solve. Ultimately, I think that, you know, 
digital assets and cryptocurrency uh, are going to frustrate banks in two ways. One is on the consumer side, if their consumers are wanting these products and they don't offer them, which I think over time they will, but if they don't offer them, so they're frustrating their customers in that way. On the other side, where their strategies could be frustrated is what blockchain could do and what digital assets can do to their fundamental business model, right? If I am able to use digital assets, do I need as much a sort of a traditional bank in a checking and a saving account model? Can I do it in different ways? So there's a frustration of their strategy that it could disintermediate. So I think that, you know, you know, large banks are pretty wise about this. They're looking at this. They're looking at, you know, things like Ethereum and what that could mean to their future and, and really trying to understand it on both sides of that equation, their customer demands, as well as what it could do to their particular strategy if they don't start looking at this space in earnest. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. So another question that we have from the back channel, I can ask those questions in the meantime. This question comes from James, and he's asking more around, I think you kind of touched on this, but he's asking more around how do you cultivate or sustain a community of these social investments, social investors? So if you want to comment on like growing your social investing platform. Yeah. So part of it is, you know, I respect the problem. The minute you've created an ecosystem of 24 million people engaging, you really respect the problem, meaning that you don't try to solve it in three different answers. (laughs) It is a multifaceted sort of, the nature of it requires multifaceted approach. But there's a few best practices. So one is, making sure that you never veer away from ease of use. There's nothing that frustrates a crowd away from like difficulty of either because there's hurdles in the in the way to be able to transact it. So like we just uh, launched Socks in the US and we were very committed to the idea that it had to be fractional shares, that it was commission free, that you were able to do it at a very low level to come in. So making sure that you don't frustrate the crowd with friction in the in their experience and in their accessibility. So I think that that's, you know, that's a sort of a best practice that I try never to veer around away from. The second is to make sure that when we are offering thought leadership or insights around the markets that is over and above what what the social network is doing and saying, making sure that it is synthesizing, distilling what we're hearing are the driving factors of that. So sometimes it can be overwhelming when you I'm sure as you all go, like when you get into your Twitter feed or your any kind of social feed that you might have, where it can feel like you just get lost in the in the sort of the volume of it, right? So part of our place, our playbook is also to figure out like what else can we do over and above that that constantly tries to have simple insight and synthesis and context over it. So you know, this week for example, we had a ton of volatility in the marketplace, and our U.S. was out there giving context and coaching and synthesizing how to navigate that. So it's both the wisdom of the crowd, but also being able to have the synthesis magic that I talked about. Thank you. And another question I have here is from Alex, and he's curious about your acquisition strategy. So currently you're a B2C, business to consumer. Are there any plans in your product roadmap to also pursue B2B, perhaps offering, because, you know, I think I think it was Heather who said that banks are now getting potentially into offering crypto to their customers. Could that be a possible segue where you partner, eToro partners with a bank to provide cryptocurrencies? 
I mean, I think that there's, you never want to say never because where the use case leads us to keep serving our end consumers, we will go, right? At the end of the day, even in a B to B model, there's probably a C at the very end of that, right? So we, you know, I think it's going to be where it leads us. But right now, I'd, I'd say to you that our mission at this immediate juncture is to continue to serve the consumer that's coming on our doorfront and not necessarily a B2B strategy. But that doesn't mean it won't change one day. But at the moment, our, our, our hunger and our desire is to keep serving the everyday investor. And Ambika, if I may ask a quick follow-up there, we're always curious about the roadmap, Lule. And so it sounds like with the retail investor being a focus, how are you thinking about product expansion to serve them? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that the the broader global capability that may be Toro, the, the lightning in the bottle globally, that we still don't have. Because remember, we just started two plus years ago in the US and we started with crypto. So part of it is going to be to continuously roll out some of the amazing innovations that we've had globally to the US, like copy and, and brokerage copy and, and being able to copy stock strategies. But then we also have other ambitions. We, you know, offering options in the future, being able to have NFTs, NTFs, sorry. My kid is here. I'm sorry. She's, she's being silly. <laughs> hello. And, you know, make it, can you hear me? Yes. I was saying hello to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're in my ear. She's being silly around me. So like making sure that we are continuously bringing, as I said, innovations around digital assets. And so part of it, I think, is bringing that global footprint here. And then part of it is also going to be as the, as the broader digital asset world innovates, we want to be right there with it. And, and it comes in different forms. Like you'll hear me talking about assets that we don't have on our platforms yet. But we think it's really interesting for our consumers to read about and learn about. And I think that that's just as important to do uh, for your customers as it is to just talk about the products you have on your own shelf. And the last question we have from the back channel is from Bibi. And she she's asking if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that eToro has had as part of your evolution journey. So you know, I would be it would be too much hubris for me to be talking about challenges just in four months. But I'd say for the broader company, you know, the, the, the learnings have been how to make this. I mean, there is no blueprint. I mean, there was when they were starting out, there was no blueprint with this idea of having an educated, education powered platform that has social at the heart of it and is a multi-asset platform. There was just no playbook for them to go through. So the challenges was also just how they navigate through breaking normal all the time. And I think the other part of it is, you know, I feel really committed and privileged that we are doing things that are at the service of the customer and where the customer has, wants to go. But that doesn't mean the regulations have caught up to that, right? So just knowing how to navigate the, 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 the abyss between the two, those points of, of situations is really important. And then, I mean, lastly, I'd say, you know, uh, you know, I want to say, I think that um, I've never had a parental attitude towards regular investors. I've never thought to myself, I know they don't. So therefore, um, they don't know what they're doing. And it was, it's just a it really, it's a privilege to be at a firm that believes that too. That ultimately, what you want to do is empower people with transparency and knowledge and ease of use. But I don't want to be the parental sort of a model that says, I know what, what's best for you alone. And so that part of it, I'm sure 
was a challenge to be able to devise that because that was unheard of in those days, right? And when they were starting out, Wall Street was still looking at the retail investor as, as the dumb money. I think we have another person on stage, Sharon. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and ask a question? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. This is my first time here, and I think this is a great forum to learn more about fintech as, as a business as well. So in terms of my background, I have a background in uh, machine learning, deep learning, like I have a PhD in that domain, and I'm mainly looking into redefining finance, I would say, with use of AI. So I think my question with respect to you know, the business, and I mean, one, one question which I feel I want to ask is, what do you think about fintech? Like, do you consider it as a mode of kind of bringing more of a social change or it's like more of an innovation right now? And a follow-up question is, what are your thoughts on, you know, possibly fintech and banks collaborating in future? Like, uh, where do you see that going? Yeah. I mean, I think fintechs and banks are collaborating all the time, right? Whether it's B2C and a B2C provider, or whether it's the back end of it, right? So, you know, one could argue Plaid is a fintech, right? And they're powering you know, tons of banks out there. So, I think that fintech is, is something that's really, to my mind, I, when I think of that word, it's really about a, a mindset shift as much as it is um, about the fact that it's tech based or that it has, you know, cool people that do agile and, and do ideation on yellow pads, right? It's much more about, like, I think, a mindset shift. And that's one of the reasons I love being in fintech. And that mindset shift is saying, what if normal doesn't have to be that way? And I think that that's a really interesting place to start solving a problem. Thank you. This is very insightful. Thank you, Sharon. Yes, go ahead. I think we have a back channel question. Do you have any? Go for it. Okay. This question comes to us from Michael Martinez. Oh, and maybe he's trying to get on stage too. But Michael is from Visa. And I think his question, Lule, for you is, within Visa, we've been seeing increased engagement within the large FIs. And he's curious about your take because your background is similar from a large FI from an FI, uh, do you believe that these large, more traditional banks are simply curious or are they looking to truly implement a go-to-market strategy? For for crypto? For w which part of the, of the experience? Oh, my, my apologies. Uh, crypto. For crypto. Do I think they're serious? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> they have to be, right? You know, like anything that threatens a, your, your consumers exiting on a regular basis, anything that shows just told you 70% of our customer base are millennials, right? Anything that shows that you have a, uh, a gap in a generational connection should make you wake up and see. But that's, to my mind's eye, you know, I think there are lots of smart people in established firms. I, I think there are lots of smart people everywhere. I've never been one of those people that thinks to myself, like, fintechs know when the establishment is this sort of just big Goliath that's looking to, to you know, to, to just preserve. I think there's lots of smart people. I think what the challenge, though, is when you're in an establishment, you know, a company or a, a, a kind of incumbent, there are systemic things that make it really hard for you to break normal. So even if you're a really clever person, there's just you're just hemmed in in ways a fintech that doesn't have that same tethering can be able to, to spread its wings on. So I think that, you know, I think they're definitely thinking about it. The question really be, will be about whether their systems will allow it. Thank you. To be seen. 
So Lule, one last question that we always get, and this time we did get one from Michael, who's in the audience, and he asked if we're looking, or he or she, uh, whoever's looking for a job with eToro, what's the process? What are some key roles that you're hiring for? Oh, we are hiring galore at eToro, so definitely go check us out. There are roles where, so we are growing the U.S. footprint. We are hiring customer service. We're hiring relationship managers because our customers, we, you know, we're one of the fewest digital pla trading platforms that actually has individuals that you could talk to, a relationship manager that you can talk to. So we're hiring there. We're hiring in product areas and in project management and so many other things. It's an exciting, growing place. So check us out. Compliance is another one. Are these all remote or? You know, it's funny. When I first joined eToro, one of the things that I told them is I said, you know, this great resignation, we're going to be the winning side of the equation. And so we've been incredibly flexible in terms of understanding that talent lives on every corner of these 50 states. And so wanting to make sure that we take advantage of that, but also be smart about making sure that you know, some of the tricky parts of being remote, we are hybrid. One of the tricky parts of also hiring a remote um, employee footprint is that you have to work and be really intentional about creating uh, community and culture and a sense of connectedness. And so the social contract we have with people is that, yes, we're hybrids, but you really have to join the, the deliberate nature of making sure that community is formed in that space. And who better than eToro to build a thriving community? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's it for today. We're at more than one hour. So thank you for staying over, Lule. Any parting words from you? But from my side, we just very much enjoyed listening to your inspirational personal story and also the story of eToro and what you guys are doing. I hope more stories such as yourself. I hope the system creates more stories such as yourself so we can continue to get inspired. Yeah, and it's not the system that's going to do it on its own. So we've got, what, 50 plus people on this call? It's all of us. So that's the parting words I give to people is that the systems don't change without all of us leaning into them. Thank you. An honor to have you again, Lule. Thank you so much for making time tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific again. Thanks for joining. And uh, if you missed anything from today or if you want to hear it again, we'll have it up on all the major podcasting platforms by this Sunday. Thank you and have a good night. Bye.